Good morning, Veritas. My name is Mark Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. If you're new here, um, just kind of a heads up. Last week, Jeff Dodge, uh, one of our other pastors, was teaching on Psalm 23, and he described himself as like a, a curator of an art exhibit or an art museum where he's helping you kind of walk through and see the beauty of the paintings. Well, this morning, I'm not a curator at an art museum. Uh, I feel like I'm like a safari guide taking you deep into the wild, taking you on an expedition to see God in his natural habitat, which how many of you guys have been to a zoo? How many have been to a zoo? Um, almost everyone in the room, okay? All the hands. How many of you have been on a safari? How many of you have been on a safari? Okay, just a few people. Let me explain what this is. Uh, a safari is like you're going into the wild and the animals are not behind glass cages, right? They are out in their natural habitat. And so when you see the elephants, you're like, hey, they could kill me. And they do. Like people get killed. We were in Africa, uh, went on my first safari and, and uh one of the, we were talking about um, Jeff and, and Marlon, these guys, uh, Jeff Dodge and, and Marlon, this guy from Cornerstone that were on the trip. They've been to many, on many safaris and, and, and the guides always have story, stories about other guides that have gotten killed by the animals. And so a safari is dangerous. And this morning, you're not going to the God Zoo. It's not like, there's God. He's, look, he's behind the cage and he's safe. It's like, this morning, we are going to see God in Psalm 2, in ways that honestly, as I've studied this, are terrifying. And some of you are like, I mean, my goal is that none of us get killed this morning, okay? We're going to see God. And, and some of you are like, great, I brought my friends this morning, or you're visiting church or whatever. It's like, what, what are we going to do with this? Well, I'm just telling you, this is the thing. Like, one of the things we do is we just try to open God's word and let him speak to us. And and our goal is to try to stay out of the way and not try to like redact or revise who God is to make it uh, him comfortable to us. But we're going to let him kind of confront us with the reality of his presence. And so I want to open Psalm 2 this morning. And I'm going to do what, uh, what Jeff Dodge did last week. Um, I'm going to read through Psalm 2 in two translations. The first one is the Christian Standard Bible. It's just a, a basic translation of, of this text. And then the second is from the message, kind of a modern translation. So if you would listen to these words from Psalm 2, he says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one in enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. I want to read this now in uh, the message translation. Kind of gives a, just a contemporary language to this. This is Psalm 2 from the message. He says, why the big noise nations? Why the mean plots peoples? Earth leaders push for position. Demagogues and delegates meet for summit talks. The God deniers, the Messiah defiers. Let's get free of God. Cast loose from Messiah. Heaven throned God breaks out laughing. At first he's amused at their presumption. Then he gets good and angry. Furiously he shuts them up. Don't you know there's a king in Zion? A coronation banquet is spread for him on the holy summit. Let me tell you what God said next. He said, you're my son and today is your birthday. What do you want? Name it. Nations as a present. Continents as a prize. You can command them all to dance for you or throw them out with tomorrow's trash. So rebel kings, use your heads. Upstart judges, learn your lesson. Worship God in adoring embrace. Celebrate in trembling awe. Kiss Messiah. Your very lives are in danger, you know. His anger is about to explode. But if you make a run for God, you won't regret it. This is God's word this morning. Here's what I've noticed about humans, and, and you may have noticed this too. We have a question for God. It's kind of a, a, one of our questions as we interact with the Bible is this question, why is God so mad at people? Have you ever talked to people who, who kind of have that question? Like, yeah, the, the hellfire and brimstone, the, the anger, the wrath, like what's up with this? Why is God so mad at people? Like, he just seems angry. The God of the, the Bible or the God of the Old Testament. Why is that? But the psalmist is asking a different question. He's actually asking, why are people so mad at God? kind of flips that question, seeing it from a different lens. Why are people so mad at God? That's how he begins this. He, he talks about these, the nations, the peoples, the kings of the earth. They're, they're trying to throw off God and his rules and commands. And he's, he calls it a conspiracy. Uh, some of you are into conspiracy theories. Well, this is like a conspiracy. Theory. Like, Why has humanity like come together to fight against God? That's a conspiracy, but the word in Hebrew is like, why do the nations conspire like murmur? You know, murmuring? You know, murmuring like, uh, if I were to do a word association and throw out a name, and there's a lot of people here, I just, I just throw out a name, hey, the caucuses are coming up, what, what about Bernie Sanders? And all of a sudden, if we were in a church, if we were just out there and this was a crowd of random people, I say, hey, what do you guys think of Bernie Sanders? All of a sudden, there'd just be a murmur in the crowd, right? Love him, hate him, whatever. Or I, I come out and say, hey, Donald Trump, what do you think? And all of a sudden the crowd just murmuring, right? Whatever candidate, Joe Biden, whatever candidate you throw out, people have opinions. And depending on which side you're on, your murmuring is going to be maybe against them. 
So this is kind of what we do. It's like, hey, Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, you know, murmur. People have opinions about Jesus and most people's opinions are not favorable. So we see this, this murmuring, the psalmist says. Like, why do people do that? Like, why do people murmur against God? Why do they hate him so much? Well, here's the thing. He says, why are they murmuring against God and his anointed one, verse 2. Let me explain this. Some of you are like, what is God and his anointed one? Who's the anointed one? God made a promise, a covenant with David. Remember David, the shepherd boy who became a great king? God promised David that he would not fail to have a king on the throne. That's a big part of understanding the Old Testament is this lineage that goes through the line of David. Some son of David is going to rule on the throne. And so that's the symbol. The anointing oil is kind of a symbol in this text of the son of David becoming the king. And so that's why he says, tear off, let us tear off their chains, throw off their ropes. He's saying, why is the world hate Israel? Why does the world hate their temple, hate their king, hate their city, Jerusalem? They just want God out of the picture. And we understand this. I mean, how many of you enjoy taking orders from other people? How many of you love having people in your life to just kind of tell you what to do? What all of us long for is autonomy. We, we long for freedom, which we think will come through autonomy. Uh, autonomy is like self-rule. We want to rule ourselves. And so, so humanity wants to rule ourselves. So we take our stand against God. So the picture here in Psalm 2 is like humanity in this corner and in this quarter God. You know, like when the, when the fighters come together and stare each other down, it's like the universe, the world versus God Almighty. That's the picture of Psalm 2. And then look at what happens, verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. God's response to this picture of humanity trying to break away from him, he laughs. And that, like, God thinks that's funny. I, how does he see rebellion as funny? Well, actually, it's like he's ridiculed. He, he's ridiculing them in the sense that this scene is, is utterly ridiculous. It's ridiculous to, to think that God's creation could, could tear away from him. So imagine this, okay. Uh, some of you in this room have toddlers, little, little kids. And imagine you have um, these sweet, little toddlers, the cutest little toddlers. I, we have a ton of cute kids in Veritas Kids, but let me just pick Rosa and Ruben Allgood. The cutest little, they come in and I'm just like, these kids have never done anything wrong in their entire life. And then you talk to their parents, Lance and Emily, and you're like, okay, they're little terrors, just like every other kid. No, they're sweet kids. Okay, but just imagine this picture. Okay, little two and five-year-old Rosa and Ruben. Okay, so Ruben gets talking to Rosa. Somehow the parents leave uh, for some, some reason. They got to go out real quick. And so uh, Reuben goes over to Rosa. He's like, Rosa, I know you were pretty ticked off at, at dinner tonight because mom wouldn't let you have pop in your sippy cup. 
that was mean of her to do that to you. And I saw that at nap time, you wanted to have the iPad. I'm making all this up. I just, for, uh, you wanted to have the iPad during nap time. And mom, she wouldn't let you have it. Mean. Then he starts going on and 7 p.m. bedtime? Are you kidding me? Like in the summer, the sun hasn't even gone down and now they're just tricking you because they're trying to get you down to bed at five because it sets in the winter, it gets darker sooner. And so they're trying to even push it to 6.30. I mean, mom and dad are straight up mean. And so you know what we're gonna do? We are gonna take over the house. We're gonna take over the house. And so while Lance and Emily are gone, they like come up with this whole plan. And Rose is like, sweet, I've got a leftover box from Christmas from some doll toy. We'll use that and we'll barricade the driveway. And then Ruben's like, sweet, get all the pillows off the couch. We are going to barricade the, all the doors to the house. Every door we're going to barricade. Let's find uh, some sheets and we're going to make a fort, a protective fort, just in case. And they barricade themselves in. And so Lance and Emily like pull in the driveway in the car, whatever. I mean... I don't know why they left them alone, but anyway, they come home and, and like, there's some like little cardboard box in the driveway and they kind of, oh, somebody, somebody must have left a box out in the driveway and they kind of like roll over and it's like, whoosh, you know, and the kids are staring out the window, like, okay, they got through the barricade. And then, you know, and then they come in and like, they open the door and like, kind of like, mm, what's going on here? And they kind of push it open and like, pillows, what's this? And they walk in and they're like, quick, get to the fort. And they run to the fort and they're like, and they, you know, they hear him rustle around. They come like, ah, oh, this is funny. So they grab the blanket, like pull it off. Like, we're home. And Rose and Ruben are like, we're going to fight you off, right? Because you're, you're mean. Okay, so after, like, this is all, like, oh, well, this is so weird for Lance and Emily. And then they find out the plot. Like, oh, you were trying to take over our house. That's what that little box was. That's what the pillows were. That's what the blankets were. And they start laughing at this scene. Now, every parent has been in this position where you're like, it's like you're supposed to be the parent and you have to discipline your kids, but yet you're wanting to laugh. And so you have to have the other person like, hey, you need to take over it because I'm laughing right now. Um, so at first it's like funny until you realize that it was for real. On the one hand, this is funny. Humans trying to take over. Humans whose lifespan is like 70, 80, maybe 90, maybe 100 years. This little lifespan. And we're going to try to take over against a God who is eternal. A human being who's a dependent on breath in our lungs is going to try to take over and fight a God who is self-existent, who stands outside of eternity. Uh, uh, he's eternally stands outside of time. He is all-powerful. He knows everything. He invented the laws of science and nature. He designed you the human brain, the ears, the eyes. He made us, these animals, this beautiful creation. And so this scene is utterly ri ridiculous. So humanity taking over God's good planet is terrible. So verse five, 
So after he laughs, then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king in Zion, my holy mountain. This place Zion is, um, it's like a symbol of the place where God dwells, like the capital city of God's dwelling. Now, David knows as he's writing this, and God knows that God doesn't just live in a city, in a temple in Jerusalem. But this is a picture of the place where God dwells. The message translation says, don't you know there's a king in Zion? This is the question that we're confronted with this morning. Do you know that there is a king in Zion? Do you know that there is an owner of the earth that you live in? Do you know that your life has a purpose. Your life is not just a series of random molecules that came together. Your life was designed and you have a purpose. Do you know that there's a king in Zion? And so he says to this anointed one, the son of God, he calls him, hey, it's your birthday. What do you want? Do you want the nations? Do you want all the peoples of the earth? And he says, you rule them with an iron scepter. This is an important kind of motif in the Bible. This idea of the iron scepter. The iron scepter is a symbol of sovereignty. Like something a king would hold to rule. It's a a sign of sovereignty. But in this case, it's like absolute authority over everything. Because he's talking about the nations belong to him. Let me go back and, and I want you to see how this thread goes through the whole scripture. Even in the very first book of the Bible, you go back to Genesis 49 and, and these verses are going to come up on the screen. He says in Genesis 49, this is a prophecy that Jacob has 12 sons. And toward the end of Jacob's life, he's, he's kind of prophesying over each of his sons and he says he gets to Judah and he says Judah your brothers will praise you your hand will be on the necks of your enemies your father's sons will bow down to you Judah is a young lion who dares to rouse him the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. Okay, we're talking about like a few thousand years ago. A couple of thousand years before Jesus comes on the scene. There's a prophecy that from the line of Judah, from the family tree of this son named Judah, there's going to come a ruler. And when the time is right, it says the obedience of the peoples is going to be his. And he talks about this iron scepter that this son of Judah is holding. So then we get to Acts 4, the New Testament. This is after Jesus has been crucified, raised from the dead. Acts 4, verse 25 These verses are on the screen as well. It said, you said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant. Okay, and he quotes this Psalm that we're studying this morning, Psalm 2. He says, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? 
The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord, against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Psalm 2 was fulfilled when the nations came together and they killed Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They plotted against God and they won. They killed God. The king from the line of Judah is Jesus Christ. But look at verse nine. He says, you will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. Pay homage to the sun or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. Let me, let me just stop here. And some of you were here last week and we studied Psalm 23. Remember in Psalm 23, the, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. Remember the, the, the shepherd who guides you in a path of righteousness. He chases you with goodness and mercy all the days of your life. S some of you are at this point saying, you know what? I like that God. I like that Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever talked to people about this and they'll say something to the effect of, well, my Jesus would never dot, dot, dot. Have you heard that? Like, my Jesus would never like send me to hell or would never send other people to hell, like only the bad people. My Jesus is, my God is this. My God is a God of love. My Jesus is a good shepherd who gives mercy, not the angry king who gives judgment. Now, as a good safari guide, I have to tell you, we're like riding along in our land cruiser and, and you're like, well, my lions would never eat anybody. <laughs> my elephants would never trample anybody because I've been watching Disney and I know what elephants and lions do, right? And so you jump out of the land cruiser and I'm like, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter what your lions do. Like, these are lions. Doesn't matter how you define them or what shows you've been watching, but like these lions are real and they're looking for food and they see you and they see food. Get back in the land cruiser, right? I would not be a good safari guide if I didn't warn you of two things. Two dangers as we, as we think about this. Danger number one is this. It's the danger of reductionism. Reductionism. Do you know what reductionism is? If you're taking notes, danger number one, reductionism. And this is, reductionism is when you oversimplify something and you break it down into small parts that, that don't reflect how complex something actually is. So, so whenever you hear someone say, it all boils down to dot, 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 they're about to reduce something very complex to, to a way oversimplified tweet. <laughs> like you see, this, all, this is what Twitter is. Twitter is reductionism. It's like, it all boils down to dot, dot, dot. Think about this. 
It could be in anything. Just make it up, right? In politics. You know what politics all boils down to? It all boils down to just pick whatever thing you're passionate about. Foreign policy. That's it. It all boils down to taxes. It all boils down to Supreme Court justices. It all boils down to, and you, you know that whatever they say at that point is like so oversimplified that they're missing like the whole picture of what it all boils down to. Poverty. Poverty all boils down to work ethic. I mean, if people would just work harder, we wouldn't have poverty. Like, you, you know if you're talking to that person, like there's not going to be any reason. Like they've, in their little minds, have reduced something to an absurd, like this is an incredibly complex issue. Parenting. You know, parenting all boils down to discipline or unconditional love or whatever it is. And this is the problem with saying it all boils down to God is love. What is the danger of reducing God to something good like love? What's the danger of that? Here's a question. Do you want justice on this earth? Does anyone in this room want justice? Does any of you, do any of you long for a world without racism? Do any of you long for a world without like social inequality? Do any of you long for a world without greed and violence and assault? I think we all long for this. And here's the reality. If God Let's see. If sin does not make God angry. If there's no anger in God over the vandalism of his beautiful earth that he created. If there's no iron scepter in the hand of God. If he doesn't have any authority to punish sin, then there will never be justice. I mean, if there was, this is just common sense. I mean, if there was no such thing as law enforcement and courts and judges, what would our world look like? And so verse 12, he says, so pay homage to the son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. Danger number two is this. Danger number two is rebellion. Rebellion. And here's the problem. Everyone wants justice, but no one wants a king. Everyone wants justice, but no one wants a king. All of us want to hold the iron scepter and enforce our agenda on other people. But in our right minds, if I'm thinking of like in my right mind, I know that since the problem is actually in me, it's not like 
there's all these problems out there. And if I could just get a hold of that iron scepter, if I could just get even my candidate in power and the policies that we're excited about, if we could just exert our power over other people, then we would have peace on earth. Then we would have justice. Like we all know that's absurd, right? Because you know, like the problem is in me. If I get that iron scepter in my hand, I'm going to exert my selfish desires over everybody else. We'll never have justice. In fact, our only hope for justice is that God is holding an iron scepter. God is sovereign. Okay, so here's the tension we find in Psalm 2. God is holy. He must punish sin. He's holding this iron scepter. And how does he use his iron scepter? I want to take you to one of the most mind-blowing passages in the Bible. This was written about 450 years before Jesus came to this earth. Isaiah 53 verse 5. A prophecy about the anointed one that's coming. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. Remember that in Psalm 2? The problem is the rebellion of the nations. Well, guess what was? He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities, our sin. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. The Lord was pleased to crush him severely. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Let me translate that to those of you who are like, wow, I don't understand that. God used all of his absolute authority to step off the throne. Jesus Christ on the cross and the anger and the wrath of God against sin was poured out on Jesus Christ. So that Romans 3.25 says this, God, look at this on the screen, God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood. So he took all of the sin that is in me, in us, and he transferred it onto his son. He's the atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith. So we receive Jesus by faith. We look at that and we say, yes, receive through faith to demonstrate why. Why did Jesus get killed for our sin? To demonstrate his righteousness. So the cross of Christ is a display of the righteousness of God. So imagine this. 
if a judge just pardons guilty people, uh, this person's convicted of murder, and he just, boom, not guilty, next. I'm like, what's going on here? This judge is like letting all these people go, and the next person, this sex offender comes, and he's like, boom, not guilty. And he walks away, and they're like, whoa, what's going on? If the judge just starts declaring people not guilty, he is not a righteous judge. She is not a righteous judge at that point. So the cross, God taking on the sin of the world upon himself demonstrates his righteousness, that he's not just sweeping the sins of the world into the closet and calling himself a holy God. No, he deals with our sin on the cross. Psalm 2.12 says, His anger may ignite at any moment, but look at the last line of this psalm. This is such great news. He says, All who take refuge in him are happy. It's like, imagine the holiness of God. The holiness of God over here. And, and it's like, I'm terrified by the holiness of God because I see my sin. And I'm like, God! And instead of running this way, the psalmist is saying, run this way. It's like, I'm terrified by God, so I run toward him. He says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's like, we need to take refuge from God in God. We need to hide ourselves in the wounds of Jesus Christ. That is the only safe place to take refuge from God is in God. Why are people so mad at God? Because he is the king and he demands to be in charge. It would be a ridiculous scene for the parents to say, you know what, kids, you're right. You just need to be in charge here. Do you know there's a king in Zion? And here's what he's asking of you. Here's what he's inviting you into. He is inviting you in to his presence to take refuge from him so that now that iron scepter is not a threat to you. It is your security because you see the cross of Christ and you run to God and find total freedom in him. The kids are only safe under the protection of parents, right? And that's the picture we get here. When you see the beauty of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you, God being in charge will be your greatest joy. And when you pray the Lord's Prayer, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done, will just fill your heart with so much joy and freedom. You know, um, we were talking about this. Um, that day is coming, right? Hebrews 9.27. And this week, uh, it was last Sunday, I, uh, my son came running down the stairs and he said, Dad, Kobe Bryant was killed in a helicopter crash. I was like, no, it's gotta be a joke. I stood there and watched the TV just in silence. 
And I think in, for those of you that are like, I, Kobe Bryant's just another person and uh, th that's fine. But just it, it kind of uh, awakens us to the suddenness of death. I mean, how quickly, like the helicopter is like a millionaire's minivan. You know, it's like, we, we've known that. Like, hey kids, jump in, we're going to practice. And all of a sudden, like, Nine people are set, what, gone. You know, it's just, it's like unthinkable, right? And Psalm 2 is a warning to us that all of us here, like we are fools if we don't think about the day that we're gonna die and are we ready to face the God of the universe? Are we ready to stand before him? Have you taken refuge in the King of Zion? I'm not asking if you've been to church before. I'm not asking if you like check the multiple choice question that Jesus is the son of God. I'm saying, have you ever come to the point in your life where you have given up your will and surrendered to the king of kings? We were talking in an elder meeting this week and one of our elders, uh, and I'm glad to tell you, we finally have an elder team. Because we finally have an elder that's 60 years old. And it's Dale Mulliken. His birthday was yesterday. Yeah, go Dale. Um, and Dale was, we were reading this psalm. Because we, we talk about the sermons um, in our elder meeting in the text. And he goes, have you guys ever done this? Psalm 2. Have you guys ever raged against God? He goes, because I have. And he told about a time when he was going off to college. And he was dating this girl. And she was a Christian and he was not. And he, he was going off to college. And he's like, well, you know what? I think I'm going to be done with God. Because I'm going to college. I need to, you know, live the dream. Do my own thing. And he said, he told Lori, his girlfriend at the time, I'm not buying this God stuff. I guess I'm going to have to go to hell with the rest of my family. He said, I went to UNI. He goes, I woke up one morning after a night of partying. He said, I woke up on the lawn of the towers at UNI with, covered with dew. Just on the lawn, covered with, with dew. And he said, three weeks after I said, I guess I'm going to have to go to hell with the rest of my family. He said, three weeks later, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And I was saved and his whole life was set on a new trajectory. And the impact of he and Lori and their life um, together is, is kind of all over our church. There, many of you know that, but the man of Galilee, Jesus, the son of God, won his heart and everything changed. Went from like covered with dew because he was passed out to all of a sudden alive in Christ. That's the miracle that happens when you give your life to Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you this morning. Do you know that there's a king in Zion? And you don't have to run in fear from him. You need to run toward him this morning. And he is waiting for you. Let's pray together. Jesus, I just can hear uh, 
the words of amazing grace. And so cool that was sung at before the Lakers game on Friday night, just as, as Usher was singing those words, amazing grace, and just broke into the song. It was just, Lord, I need you. Lord, we need you. Come, heal us. And God, actually, uh, this morning, we're saying, God, come, heal us. We need you. We know that we are frail. We are weak. We don't know the number of our days, but we understand that we are just humans and that you are God and you have made Jesus Christ King and Lord of all. So um, I just ask that as we worship, as we sing this song in control, I pray that God, we would just gladly surrender to you. And I don't know what um, the people in this crowd are going through, what they're struggling with and what brought them here this morning, but I pray that they will run to you, take refuge in Jesus, give up that life of being covered in dew and just live in for themselves and come to you, Jesus. How happy are those who take refuge in you?